0: Hello and welcome to the Creator Economy Podcast. I am Joshua Cohen here with not Lauren Schnipper, but Jim Lauterbach. Jim, I could have cued you in there a little bit better. But thank you so much for being here. You are the editor and publisher of Inside the Creator Economy, which is a newsletter you can find on LinkedIn, among presumably some other places. Before that, president of VidCon. Before that, CEO and co-founder of Revision 3. Before that, in the magazine publishing industry around PCs. There are very few people I get to talk to who have been in the Creator Economy since way before everyone called it that, as long as I have. And I'm delighted to have you here because I think you beat me by a few years. But... Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm psyched to be here, too. Love what you guys do. And it's actually really fun to be sitting here talking to you. So total psych.
0: Thank you. You, too. And Lauren is off gallivanting with her husband for their 10-year anniversary somewhere on some Grecian isle. Probably took her colorist along, just in case. (laughs) But so, Jim, we are recording this earlier on the week. By the time everyone hears this, we will have been on stage at VidCon, presumably saying some incredibly smart things that will make all these listeners way better at hitting their KPIs, just increase their ROIs. And- doing amazing stuff for people's acronyms that I can't think of right now, too. But so we'll get into some like a VidCon preview, post view, what we think is going to happen there in a minute. But first, there was some big news that dropped late last week, the biggest of which may or not be that Twitch star Felix Lengel, known as XQC, has signed a hundred million dollar deal with the rival platform Kick.com. Felix is 27 years old. He used to be a professional gamer. Now is more in the just chatting genre where he will go on Twitch for hours at a time, multiple days a week to talk to his fans, play video games, comment on whatever drama's going on in the space, watch TV shows together and more. Generally gets tens of thousands of viewers per stream, has millions of followers on Twitch, almost as many subscribers. And he is the first, I think like, poachable name of any kind of big notoriety. I mean, this was revealed in the New York Times late Friday evening with a great photo, by the way. He's holding a Streamy Award in his picture. Thank you for that. Whoever uh, pulled that from Getty at the New York Times. But Jim, like, what do you make of all this? Is Twitch in trouble?
1: Well, I think Twitch's relationship with their creators has been on a downslope for a little while. You know, you had Kai Senat, who grew up, became the number one Twitch streamer. And yes, he did things that were you know, that, that violated some of the terms of services, but he kind of got away in many ways. And so they've cut people back on the amount of money that they share with their top streamers. They had this thing, was it last week or the week before, where they were going to try and uh, say, you know, you can't burn ads into your streams anymore. That was a huge, it was mostly a comms issue, but I think this is just more emblematic of first, which is sort of, they've got issues with their, with their creators and their community, but two, they're are some deep pockets out there that are paying for these streamers? And I don't know if Kick's ever gonna make money on this. They laid out a lot of money. It's really interesting to watch.
0: Yeah, so it is reportedly at least a two year deal with a guaranteed sum of 70 some odd million, with the rest in incentives totaling around 100 million. Felix also isn't the only creator to have made a big splash about going over the kick with a multi million dollar deal on Friday.
1: Amaranth followed,
0: right? Yeah, Amaranth 2, I think it was must have been planned in some capacity or maybe she just thought it was good timing and these things come together relatively quickly, but Amaranth followed Felix's announcement by a couple hours in her preview video. It actually showed her looking at Felix's announcement and then calling her manager, who's Ryan Morrison at Evolve Talent asking him if she could get one of those deals too. It was pretty cute and clever. And then Amaranth was streaming on kick to when I saw tens of thousands of viewers. And her deal reportedly is not as much as Felix's, more in the $30 to $40 million range. Part of that in incentives, part of that paid guaranteed over the course of two years. But yeah, it seems like Twitch has had a interesting relationship with its top talent. I mean, there's all these instances of people getting banned on Twitch for reasons that they don't quite know. And before there was no other potential competitor or place where they could land, they could go over to YouTube, but I guess the audience didn't really pour over as well, or maybe just no one even thought of it. Do you think it's like the interface with Kik that makes this such an easy transport from one platform to the other? Or what is it about this platform aside from the money? But like usually in the past, if a creator has wanted to go over to another platform, they kind of did so at their own risk or their mileage may vary, right? Because it was difficult to port your audience from the existing platform where you have lots of fans over to the other. You certainly couldn't do it overnight. But now it seems like you can
1: Well, I don't know. I think you get to the point now where you have some creators who are big enough that their audience will follow them, at least their core audience. Because remember, even with millions of followers, your simultaneous on live is in the tens or hundreds of thousands. So it's it's a small fraction of the number of followers you have. But I think the interesting thing here is, remember, we've had other platforms that have tried to compete with Twitch in the past. Caffeine is still out there and doing things and that for a while was gonna be the big thing and all the Twitch streamers sort of wanted to go there, but kind of fell down a little bit. I think, you know, mostly because they weren't giving those big advances anymore. You look at someone like Ninja who's bounced around from, I think he was at Caffeine at one point. I know it was on YouTube. I don't know where he's at now, but he's another one of those creators who started on Twitch in many ways and has bounced all over the place. I think what we're seeing here is somebody new with a deep pocket of cash that they're willing to fork out to creators that have enough of a following that will watch them anywhere and intelligently picking those creators plucking them over, giving them a lot of money, and having the audience follow. How many creators are there like that? I don't know, but certainly Amaranth uh, and Felix are two of the biggest.
0: Yeah, definitely Felix has 11.8 million followers on Twitch now on kick.com says so he has 273,000 followers. Although it'll be interesting to see over the next week or so if his peak concurrent viewers stays about the same. I imagine they will even though his follower count is way lower over there. And so part of the incentive for people who come over to kick too, is their subscription split. So the amount that creators take home from paying subscribers, anyone can go on to Twitch, anyone can go on to kick. They can pay $5 a month or so to subscribe to their favorite streamer, or they could pay $5 a month to subscribe to multiple streamers too. If they pay $5 a month, they get certain features within that streamers chat, their comments get elevated. They might get other perks and more. Kik's payout is 95-5. YouTube's on that for subscribers on the channel is 70-30. Twitch's has been 50-50. There was an announcement, presumably because there was all this noise about people leaving Twitch and going over the other platforms, but there was this announcement from Twitch that for their kind of like highest tier of creators, they were going to offer a 70-30 split. But all that's well and good. To your point, Kik It needs to pay out a ton of cash for this. They're supposedly backed by stake.com, which is this crypto gambling site. So maybe they do have infinite amount of money, but is this like a good business? I don't understand how this works long-term. Like it's arguable whether Twitch is even a good business. And YouTube is even a good business, I guess. The, all these things make it billions of dollars in revenue. There are definitely people who have thought about the economics here, but it seems like a huge undertaking to take on this incumbent for what may or may not be a profitable empire.
1: Yeah, I would love to see someone dive into the actual finances here. There's been speculation that Kick exists to push people over to crypto gambling sites, uh, the ones that you mentioned being run out of Australia and the Cayman Islands. You know, in that case it's a marketing expense. It's not a going business. It's like, we're, yeah. you know, if we spend $200 million to bring creators over and we funnel a bunch of people that are placing big bets at our online casino, hey, maybe that's better than putting up an ad in Las Vegas or a, on billboards somewhere. So there's that. But at that 95.5, I don't see any way that they're going to be able to make money as a sustainable business because the cost of running servers and streaming that stuff out and putting it out there and running websites and playing programmers and all that has got to be pretty expensive. And But remember, Twitch was giving 70% to some of their top creators for a long time. Yeah. They changed that and moved back to 50-50, and now they seem to have gone back over to 70, 30, except it's only for the first 100,000 that you make and then anything after that goes back to 50, 50, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think the money is not a big aspect of it here. Not sure that Kik's ever gonna make money. But the other thing I think is interesting, I don't know about this at all, but you know a lot of these Twitch streamers, it is not just a job, it is a life. I mean, you're spending 12, 14 hours a day streaming. Yeah, and totally. if you miss a day, your entire audience could just go follow the next big streamer. So not only are you spending all this time on it, you can't stop. And it's this hamster wheel that has got to cause burnout. And I don't know if part of the kick thing is, hey, maybe you only need to do a couple hours a day or maybe it's just four times a week. But boy, there's got to be something about that burnout thing that we're not hearing a lot about either.
0: Yeah, definitely. And that's why a lot of people, when YouTube was paying up big payouts for streamers to come over there, they aren't to the same degree at least anymore. But like Ludwig got a multimillion dollar paycheck and part of the appeal for him to go over was that he could get off the Twitch hamster wheel and establish himself on the platform that had a more sustainable business model with this combination of live stream, now short form, and this long form content and really build up an audience there so he could get that reliable AdSense revenue.
1: Yeah, I do think though, this is another example of a platform not paying attention to the lead members of their community in the way that they should. Yeah. And those community members were voting. There are direct parallels here to what's going on at Reddit right now. I know we didn't want to talk about Reddit, but Reddit's going through the same thing with their mods of their biggest, you know, some of their biggest subreddits. It's a lot. I won't get too much into it, but again, they're not paying the attention to their community and giving and listening to the community. And I think we're seeing the same thing happen at Twitch where you've got these top creators, they're not happy with Twitch, they don't feel like they're being heard and there's a place for them to go.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it seems like Dan Clancy, who is Twitch's new CEO, took over for Emmett Shear recently. There's a recent profile of him in The Information. He seems to run a pretty interesting life. He live streams on Twitch playing some John Denver tunes. 59 years old and seems just kind of like an iconoclast of what you think of these tech CEOs, especially of the sexy, young, seemingly kind of still startup vibe like Twitch, even though it's owned by Amazon and definitely not a startup. So it will be interesting to see how he navigates these waters and where Twitch ends up.
1: Well, one thing kind of leaning a little bit into the VidCon side is Laura Lee, who was at YouTube and worked for Jimmy Buffett at Margaritaville, is now the chief content officer at Twitch and has been since, I think since the streamies, like that may have been her first out thing that she did last year when you guys did the Streamy Awards. Oh, nice. She's on stage at VidCon on Friday doing a fireside chat. So I'm sure this will be a topic. Definitely. That'll be super exciting to see.
0: Jim, now shifting gears, let's talk about Mr. Beast and Beast Burger. So this also dropped late on Friday. And this guy on Twitter, Story Avira Time, said, is at Mr. Beast Burger done? The quote, I opened the restaurant that pays you to eat at it." unquote video was deleted in late May. And the Mr. Beast Burger account hasn't tweeted for a while. I haven't tried to order it for a while, but it went really quiet after Feastables. Then Mr. Beast replied, Yeah, the problem with Beast Burger is I can't guarantee the quality of the order. When working with other restaurants, it's impossible to control it, sadly. And to be honest, I just enjoy Feastables 100x more. Making snacks is awesome and something I'm way more passionate about. That tweet has since been deleted. And there were a slew of others that Jimmy made as well. Here are a couple more. I started Mr. Beast Burger to help restaurants make more money during the pandemic, and it worked. But sadly, when working with 2,000 restaurants I don't own, it's impossible to guarantee the order quality. I'm moving on from Mr. Beast Burger so I can focus on feastables and making snacks, exclamation point. And so then a uh, Twitter user replied, so this means during the upcoming days you will retire Mr. Beast Burger places via delivery or whatnot, since I want to try Mr. Beast Burger since it has been in London for a while. And then Jimmy said, I would if I could, but the company I partnered with won't let me stop, even though it's terrible for my brand. Young Beast signed a bad deal. I almost thought someone hacked into his account and was posting some of these things because Jimmy is very outspoken and he's very passionate about his brand and his image, but it still seems like this was a lot, even from him. And all of these tweets have been deleted, but there's been a slew of articles written up that reference these. And since all of this came out, the Mr. Beast Burger Twitter account has gone private. There's not a lot of information coming out. By the time you'll hear this, probably there's more. But let's just assume Jimmy is shutting this down. What do you think happened?
1: Well, quality has been an issue really pretty much from day one. I mean, I remember reading a couple of the reviews, even of Mr. Beast Burger in New Jersey, the first spot that opened up and people said that it tasted like cardboard, it wasn't very good. I had pointed to in the newsletter that I write a couple of stories from some people who write for the Bergen record who had done some reviews and that's a store that he owns. So you look at all these ghost kitchens and it's true that it's hard to have quality control over that many different kitchens. And indeed, the whole ghost kitchen thing has sort of been fading away anyway, as restaurants have gone back to serving real people in real restaurants, which is a good thing. So... I buy that it was a thing that happened and it was great when it happened and it got a lot of press and a lot of people got to eat their burgers and they even set up a Mr. Beast burger restaurant at VidCon last year. But maybe it has come, the time has come. And I actually applaud, Jimmy, if this is the case, for looking at things and trying it and saying, look, this didn't work. We're gonna unwind this so I can focus on the things that work. Feastables are everywhere. I think my wife just bought one at, CBS or some pharmacy somewhere or maybe it was at the Safeway knowingly or unknowingly no no she knows she's a, she's a Mr. Beast fan it. yeah so they're they're all over the place the chocolates actually pretty good i mean the only time i've had it was last year at Vidcon when the Jelly Smack uh sweet was giving them out and i'm like yeah. this this stuff's good i mean you know i'm not a huge candy fan but it was good candy and so i can see why that would be better you have much better quality control you ship it around and it's a lot less of a heavy lift than running a restaurant
0: totally eddie burback is this youtube commentary creator posted a video in march of this year called the deceptive world of ghost kitchens and in it he talks about beast burger but also just ghost kitchens in general and I'm kind of giving away the punchline here, but you can tell by the title. So go watch it anyway because it's good. But the Mr. Beast Burger that he orders from a ghost kitchen is not of the quality that you would expect, nor did it even look like a Beast Burger. And in general, the world of ghost kitchens is just insane that he reveals. Like if you go onto your DoorDash, Uber Eats, whatever app and look at these restaurants that seem like they're new kind of trendy, hippie, crunchy mom and pop or people immediately post-college joints, it could actually be just your neighborhood Applebee's set up a storefront on Uber Eats. And it probably is. It's insane. But in any case, the quality across all these different locations, definitely was a concern. And if you think about it, it has to be. If Peace burgers are made out of places like, I don't know, Applebee's and Sonic's, but also mom and pop diners, and then his own physical locations, it's going to be incredibly hard to maintain kind of the fidelity of product across those different locales, considering all the different utensils, items, processes in each of those kitchens are going to be dramatically different. And that also really limits you on the food you can do. So if you're trying to get the same tasting fries to all these different types of kitchens, I imagine that the quality of those fries has to be below a certain level because they need to be frozen a certain way, they need to be cooked very easily, they need to keep at all these different types of temperatures. I imagine the quality of the product can only be so good because it has to interact with all these different environments where I guess it makes sense for him to stop doing it if he can't guarantee it.
1: Well, also think about this. The Mr. Beast brand is being built up and it has the potential, I don't know if it's there yet, but I think it will be, to be one of the top 10 or 20 brands in the world. And that includes things like media, but it also includes things like products and merch and other things there. And for a while when I was running VidCon, I worked for the head of Nickelodeon, who now runs Nick and Paramount. And so I sat in on some of the meetings where they would talk about like the Spongebob franchise, right? Yeah. Why do you think that there isn't a series of restaurants giving Krabby Patties out and, you know, and and running the Krusty Krab? There's no Krusty Krab on the corner because it's a hard business. I'm sure they thought about it and they said, yeah, no, maybe plushies are a better business. That's definitely true. My kids have been dying to get a Krabby Patty. You could make one at home, okay? There's probably a recipe on the internet for you to make a Krabby Patty. And just, ar, 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 ar. <laughs> 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 always have to be recipe. Definitely, but that that
0: is a good point. You think if the people at Viacom couldn't figure out kind of a franchise around a component of one of the most popular children's cartoons of all time, who can?
1: Yeah, exactly. But- something that is like mass-produced like chocolate or many other things are. And and it's the brand. It comes back to the brand. And Jimmy's built an amazing team of people to help him build his brand and help him build his empire. And I'm sure they're looking at this and they're like, yeah, you know what? We could have a vending machine that's a Mr. Beast vending machine, which they've done. They did it south by. They played around with it. And We could put those everywhere. We would control the quality from beginning to end. Yeah. Instead, we've got 2000 ghost kitchens and there's no guarantee. Not only that it's going to be of the quality we want, but you know, the food's not going to be hot when it gets there anyway, because it's food being delivered by who knows who. Right. I wonder what's going to happen to their physical location if
0: this does get shut down in American Dream Mall. It's right in my backyard. That was a big draw to get people to
1: come visit me in New Jersey. Yeah. Did you ever go there and have a Mr. Beast Burger?
0: I did. You know, it's not for me, (laughs) but there was a huge line of people there. And I imagine there's a huge line of people there all the time.
1: Well, that's a good thing I'd like to know. Like right now, is there a line at the Mr. Beast Burger and how many people are there and how many people care? I think it'd be really interesting to pop over there and see. I wish I was in... Was it Secaucus or Paramus or something like that? And was able to look at it.
0: Rutherford, New Jersey. I'll go right after we're filming, done filming. This.
1: Yeah, and, and if you see Jimmy Hoffa there, let me know too. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I think it's.
1: I think the Beast Burger is built
0: on the location where Jimmy Hoffa
1: supposedly. Yeah, where where
0: Jimmy Hoffa is. But you'd be surprised, man. I bet it's packed right now. And that is something to say about the power of Mr. Beast and his brand. And also says something about retail in New Jersey, (laughs) where if you read those articles about how malls are dead and no one are going into the stores, I guarantee you none of those authors spent a minute in the state of New Jersey, where if I want to go to Garden State Plaza on a Saturday, I have to factor in 30 minutes for parking. It is packed. Here, people love to shop.
1: Yeah, I spent my early teens in Bergen County. I spent my time at Paramus Park. So I definitely hear you. There you go. And so, shifting
0: gears now, Jim, VidCon, this is what? This is the 13th, 14th VidCon? No, I think it's the 12th in the U.S. 12th VidCon in the U.S. We're a dozen years in. And What are you expecting to go down this year? What do you think is going to be different? What do you think is going to be the same? I feel like last year, people were really excited to be back in person. There was some energy and definitely like an electricity and vibe around it. It was a reunion for people that had been before. It was kind of this eye opening experience for people that hadn't been before, who were able to see like the scale and breadth of this thing. But now kind of now that that initial, hey, we're back, this is awesome,
1: has died down. W- what are you expecting this year? I think we're gonna see just as much, if not more enthusiasm. Last year kind of felt like all the people that had been to VidCons in the past came back and we were like, thank God we're at an event again. But it, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it wasn't as big as the one in 2019, which no event was as big in 2022 as it was in the year before the pandemic. right. So I think we'll get back to more people, more creators, more fans. I think the creator economy is changing and that'll be reflected there. You know, you think about, TikTok, TikTok was the title sponsor last year. They're not the title sponsor this year. YouTube is again. We're a lot better thinking now about how each platform has its own power. And the power of TikTok in many ways is not creating parasocial relationships with hordes of screaming teen fans like YouTube is, Twitch is, and some other places, but it's better around other things like shopping and uh, awareness and, you know, addiction. I won't say addiction, but addiction. And so I think we are better. We have a better understanding of what the platforms are. We're further into the shorts experiment, which I think is no longer an experiment, which we'll see there. You know, the idea that companies are now buying back catalogs of creators and creators are going mainstream. I think we're gonna see more of that. And I think it's gonna be a little bit less of a platform-a-palooza and more of a just creator economy in general and the way that it's going. And the tendrils of the creator economy are going into pretty much all of the economy.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that before where people are starting to figure out their lane and maybe TikTok can be comfortable with the fact that if Kabi Lame shows up, he's not going to have hordes of people around him. Uh, maybe for Charlie or someone like that, but not for the platform's biggest
1: star. Yeah, well, TikTok is doing a lounge on the creator track. Remember, there are three tracks at VidCon: the fan track, the creator track, for people who want to become a next big creator, and then the industry track, which is your B two B thing. And so they're doing a lounge on the creator track, which is great because they want to appeal to creators. But they're also bringing uh, our OG friend Max Banader and Orca in to show off live stream shopping and to try and get that out to people. So, cool. you know, again, they're leaning into their. Lanes. The YouTube folks will absolutely be there. Really excited, as we talked about earlier, to see Laura Lee talk about Twitch. And her. Uh, she's over her first 100 days, I guess maybe her first 150 days, and a lot of other really interesting speakers. So I'm excited. I'm also excited. This is the first VidCon ever, and I've been to everyone except I think the one in Mexico last year, where I... I'm not working at the event, or I don't have a booth, I don't have a company there, I don't have to worry about any employees. And I actually get to go, you know, host. Thursday stage with you in the morning and do yeah. a couple of sessions and wander around and enjoy VidCon as an attendee. So I'm super excited about that personally for, for my journey.
0: You can yell at people saying, do you know who I am?
1: <laughs> no, no, but I can walk up to a creator and be like, oh my God, I'm such a big fan of yours. Can I have yes. an autograph? And not really worry about it getting back to anybody who, you know at Viacom. I'm
0: super excited about VidCon too. I think the more I think about it, the more bullish I am on the event and this idea that there's a central point in time where a ton of fans, creators, people in the industry all get together at this one location to talk about business, do deals, meet each other, hang out and more. But it's always been, and why is this the case? Do VidCon and CAN just coordinate and they say like, yo, let's do it the same weekend again. That will be convenient for everybody. How does that happen, having you been on the side of, of planning this thing? And then it seems like Can has some more kind of like creator juice this year than in previous years. What is your take?
1: Well, first of all, I get asked all the time, and I used to, you know, I was running VidCon, like, why are you the same weekend as Can? And I'm like, we tried to change it. And we could not. So here's the real reason why. So VidCon first two years was in a big hotel, but in LA, and it moved to the Anaheim Convention Center in 2012. And after that first success, I think it was after that, it may have been a year later, but they're like, we love it. We're gonna reserve a weekend. And because the Anaheim Convention Center is right next to Disneyland, and they're really only seven weeks in the year that you can have it there because it's gotta be on school vacation. And schools in LA get out the second week of June and they start the third week of August. So you've got seven weeks you can do it. Two of those weekends are July 4th. You don't wanna do it July 4th week because everybody goes away. Now you've got five weekends you can do it. And then you go from there and, There are other events that are there because it's summer and it's next to Disneyland and they've locked in that convention center for eight years, 10 years, 20 years. And so VidCon making the best of the situation said, good thing happening. We know we want to be in either June or July. Let's lock in the same weekend every year for 30 years. And that's what they did. And so there is no other time. Now you look at Can, right? And Can is a B2B conference. MediaLink is part of it, bought it, whatever, and so they are really plugged into the creator world as well through there because UTA bought MediaLink. So yes, there are more creators there. The influencer marketing in many ways is taking over the ad agency business, which is happening there as well. But they could move themselves a little bit more easily because, you know theoretically, because it's a B2B yeah. conference, you have to worry about when kids are out of school. But again, yes. you wanna be in Cannes on the coast of France, the south coast of France in the summer. You wanna be there when it's not summer vacation though, whenever everybody's taking time off. And I imagine the Palais there is also booked a lot. So these venues are in very much, people wanna do shows there. Yeah. They are in demand and people book them out so far in advance that, you kind of locked in with what you got. It sucks because I would love to go to Cannes. I probably never will. I do still think Cannes kind of about the past and VidCon's about the future, but it's a little bit of, you know, the person who used to run VidCon talking there probably too.
0: What do you think about them making a play for creators? Are they making a play for creators? Are they just seeing like this is a new shiny object? It kind of reminds me about how, and this was also a big Michael Casson push when he was working with CES at MediaLink about getting creators on board and to attend CES, uh, the Consumer Electronics Show in January in Vegas. It seems like that has died down, but there was a moment in time about three, four, five years where it was like, oh, you're in the creator economy, you're talking with creators, you gotta go to Vegas. Vegas is cool, you gotta go to CES. You have that ad people, you you have the tech people, you have creators all there at the same time. Make some monstrous deals. And it was cool until that kind of like died down. And now it seems like can's the place where people are pushing to get this kind of work done. Is this just the latest? Is, is this the start of some long-term embracing of this ecosystem? Or are they just like thinking this is cool for right now?
1: Yeah, we'll see how it works this year. But here's what you need to think about. And it kind of ties into talking about Jimmy Donaldson and Mr. Beast. Mr Beast is building one of the top franchises in the world. He is one of the most recognizable stars in the world. And I've no idea where Mr Beast is going to be this week, but if you think about it, there's star power there and the advertisers want to talk to those stars. They want them to be part of it. So it's no longer that creators are over here and celebrities are over here. Yeah. It's a continuum. And so Stars show up all over the place. Creators show up all over the place. The advertising world wants to be part of that. And the platforms wanna be cozied up with the advertisers. If the advertisers are there, YouTube's doing a big thing there. Amazon Prime's doing a big thing there. TikTok's doing a big thing there. They're also doing things at VidCon, but there is really, the creator economy is big enough and there are enough creators that there's probably room for both at the same time. I don't think that's going away. But the idea that celebrity and creators are separate, I don't think exists anymore.
0: Yeah, super interesting. I'm I'm really excited to hear about reports back from Canada and how it went looking through that creator economy lens and super stoked for VidCon too. And so Jim, what are what are you up to? What's your day-to-day like now? What are you excited
1: about? Yeah. Well, day to day, i been writing this newsletter. It's kind of the accidental newsletter writer on LinkedIn, but it sort of worked out in VidCon and I kept it going after I left nine months ago. VidCon and kind of turned into a beast of its own, this inside the creator economy thing. Super fun to write and put it out there. I read everything anyway, so I might as well talk about what I find. Totally. People seem to find it interesting. Started to do some sponsorship there. I am working with some other brands doing some uh, work as advisory board stuff with a couple of NFT and crypto companies another startup in the really direct to creator space and a couple of others. That's really fun, as well as kind of poking around doing some really smaller creator things where it makes sense. Did a creator startup at NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, really, really more focused on building studios and the infrastructure for creator businesses at NAB, because it really is a geek show and I'm a geek. Yeah. And then... I had done VidCon in Asia, and they decided not to continue with VidCon in Asia. The guy Jasper Jonathan that I built it with is an amazing guy, does branded and all this other stuff. We're like, hey, let's see if we can keep some of that alive in Singapore. And so we did something in November last year called Creator World that we'll pick up again, either later this year or next year. So it's fun just to bounce around, not have to work full time, not have to work in a big company, not have, you know, 50, 60, whatever people working for me, just kind of doing my own thing. And I get to go to VidCon and have fun versus worrying about the team and the return and whether we're making money. So yeah, loving that.
0: That is awesome. I'm excited for you. It will be cool to share the stage with a relaxed and in the moment, Jim Louderback. I'm stoked for that. Totally chill. Totally chill. And then where can people find you if they want to get in touch? Just
1: go to LinkedIn, uh, subscribe to Inside the Creator Economy, Jim Lauterbach. there. I'm on Twitter and I'm on other places, but really LinkedIn's my jam. So go there.
0: Awesome. So go find Jim Lauderback on LinkedIn. It's spelled exactly how it sounds. And Jim, this is great. We see this more often. Thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate it.
1: Anytime. Happy to be here and um, love chatting with you and can't wait to see you in a couple of days on stage and off stage at the parties at VidCon. You too. And then we'll have Lauren Schnepper
0: will be back in the States. Me she didn't stay in Greece for good. We'll see her next week on Creator Upload. Today's show was produced by Lauren Schnipper and Joshua Cohen. Hey, that's me. It's edited by Jason King, and original music is by London Bridge, who you can check out on Instagram at London Bridge Music. Make sure you subscribe to Creator Upload, really wherever you're listening to this thing. While you're there, give us a rating, leave us a comment. If you want to talk, hit us up at info at creatorupload.com. If you like our show, please recommend it to a friend if you love it. Recommend it to everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.